The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. truth to proclaim, to sing for your glory, that you gave your only son for us as a sacrifice for sin. What a great eternal truth. And for all the timeless truths of your word, Father, we are so grateful. We bow before you. We worship this day because of that. That you would provide all the grace and mercy necessary for your redeeming work to be accomplished. Oh, we worship you. May we follow you, taking up our cross, loving sacrificially as an example to others. May we as a church be loving brothers and sisters in Christ so the world will see that we follow you and we'll come to know you as a result because this is a dark world. A dark world we live in full of sin and despair and poverty and hunger Grief, war, pain, and suffering. And apart from you, there's no answer to all of those things. And so, Lord, use your church, even this day, worshiping you around the world. Make us salt and light. There are leaders that you've placed above us, leaders of the nations of the world. Lord, we pray that you would touch their lives and help them as they make decisions that affect millions and millions and millions of people, billions of people. And we pray for those leaders, more particularly those that are close to us in our own nation, and ask you, Lord, give them godly wisdom in the decisions they make. Father, as we think of our leaders, Lord, we, we, we cannot escape recognizing that it's an election time. And I pray, Lord, that any election time would not, we would not allow Satan to remove our hearts and minds from the truth that you're the sovereign ruler of all. And not place our hope in man, but in you alone. I pray your blessings on your church today. There are those that are sick in our congregation. There are those that are homebound. There are those that are traveling. They're just not with us today. And so we just pray that you would protect them, that you would guide them, use us as a church to minister to those particularly who need emotional strength and spiritual strength and physical strength. We thank you, Lord, for our children, and uh, many of them begin school tomorrow. We pray for protection, not only physical protection, but Spiritual protection that you would guard them from those things they might be taught that are not a part of your plan. We pray for all our teachers as they prepare for a new year. We pray for guidance and protection for them as well. Principals and administrators, Lord, as our schools begin, bus drivers, People on the highways, Lord, we pray for your protection and guidance. 
this might be a fruitful year in the lives of so many in our congregation. And we thank you for your word. We praise you for your word. And we pray that as our, your word is proclaimed now, that our hearts, our minds will be open to the truths of your words, that you would speak through our pastor as he proclaims it to us today. This is the word of God. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd invite you, if you would, to turn your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. We'll be looking this morning at um, the end of chapter 1 and the first verse of chapter 2, beginning in verse 21 of chapter 1 all the way through verse 1 of chapter 2. Actually, we'll start in verse 22 instead of 21. Peter writes, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and all hypocrisy and envy and all slander. The word of the Lord. I have a quiz for you this morning. It's a one-question quiz. I might have to give you a couple clues so you get the answer, but we'll see. See if you can guess the American city. This city, in 1994 was named by the Gallup Poll the most hostile place in America. 1994, Gallup Poll, the city in America known as the most hostile place. North Charleston, no, no. Come on now. Detroit? Chicago? What was Somebody cheated this quiz already. <laughs> Philadelphia is the... My second clue was going to be, if Melody hadn't gotten the answer right on the first one, what city is best known by its, uh, by its sports fans' penchant for booing at sports games? And it's also well known for its crime and corruption in all sorts of various ways. You're right. Philadelphia. How many of you have been to Philadelphia? Is anyone from Philadelphia? Shall we apologize right out front for talking badly about your city? No, I mean, I don't know that Philadelphia is actually, I don't know if that the, the, the Gallup poll re- reflects any sort of truth. I don't know. that it, Certainly it can't be the most hostile place in America. It was at least thought to be that, has a reputation for that. Then maybe the, the behavior of the, the, the character of the city exudes that. But the reason I bring it up this morning is because it's a remarkable statistic based on the name of the city. When the name of the city is Philadelphia, which means city of brotherly love. There's some real irony in the fact that on any survey anywhere, a city called Philadelphia could also be known as or have the reputation as being the most hostile place in the nation. How can a nation be so, I mean, a city be so hostile and yet its name is a city of brotherly love? I'm not sure what William Penn was thinking when he named the city, the city of brotherly love. Maybe the character of the city was different in those days than it has evolved into in recent days. But it certainly serves the purpose of illustrating for us the remarkable irony that things are not always named as a reflection of what they really are. Or better yet, people... And places don't always live up to their name. Sometimes what they exude is not what they're called. Now, Philadelphia really doesn't, uh, uh, doesn't have a corner on the market of not living up to its name, does it? Uh, after all, uh, Philadelphia, brotherly love, is not a name that's just to mark a city in Pennsylvania. 
In fact, that very term Peter uses here as a a title, as a descriptive that should mark the church of Jesus Christ and every believer who's a part of it. And I suspect it wouldn't take you very long to think about this, to realize that what we've said about Philadelphia this morning and what others have said in Gallup polls about Philadelphia, that the city doesn't live up to its name, uh, could also be said about the church of Jesus Christ as well. That the city, that the group, that the people doesn't live up to its name. The thing that Philadelphia was supposed to be known for is the thing that the church is supposed to be known for. And what Peter is going to challenge us this morning in this text that we're going to look at is he's going to, he's going to challenge us to love boldly and to love consistently and to live up to the name that we've been given. That's what our text is about this morning. And it's going to be important for us to look at this issue. It's something we haven't talked about in a bit. We've been talking about deeply theological matters. And what Peter speaks to us about this morning is theological, but it's intensely practical. Love is not a terribly complicated matter. It's not always easy to do, but it's not critically, uh, terribly hard to understand. In fact, the Bible is really chock full of information about love. Now, the Bible has an awful lot to say about how we're to act in regards to our relationship with God. But the Bible is often, often speaking, too, about how we're to act in relationship to one another. One of the things that I find in navigating with Christians a lot is that we can often, we can often mistakenly get the impression that as long as we're right with God, as long as we're right with Him vertically, it doesn't really matter how we deal with people horizontally. Do you understand what I mean vertically, horizontally, we can mistakenly get the idea that as long as somehow privately in my heart I'm right with God, it doesn't really, it's not that critical how I deal with other people. Of course, the Bible exposes the foolishness of that kind of thinking, and it goes on to tell us that we can't even begin to claim to be right with God vertically if we're not right with other people horizontally. John says it rather distinctly in John, 1 John chapter 2, verse 9, where he says this. Simply put, anyone who claims to be in the light, that is, claims to be right with God, claims to know him, but hates his brother, is in actuality what? Still in the darkness. You see, to claim to be right vertically with the Lord, to claim to be in the light, and to have hatred in my heart for a brother exposes the foolishness of my thinking and my own self-deception, right? Isn't that what John is saying? Whoever thinks he's right with God but isn't right with other people is only fooling himself. The reality is he's not right with God. He's not in the light. He's where? He's in the darkness. He's in the darkness, John says. You see, Christianity is not a purely mental faith. It's not just about doctrine and what we believe and what information we know in our minds. Christianity is a faith that plays out in action, that plays out in our behavior, that plays out in our attitudes and in our actions and in the words that we say and how we behave with other people. And if we claim to be believers... We claim to be in the light, and it doesn't reflect in our lives, in our attitudes, in our actions, in the way we speak, in the way we deal with other people. Then we're just living a lie. In James chapter 2, verse 17, he says it this way. In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is in fact what? It's dead. It's dead. That means it's not alive. That means it's not living. It's not real. It's false. The person who runs around and says, I have faith, I have faith, I believe in God, I believe in God, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian. But you look at their life and their behavior and the way they speak and act and behave, and there's no evidence of it, that person's living a lie. They're only deceiving themselves. That's what James says, that's what John says. Christian faith is both defined and confirmed by the action that it produces. You get that? Christian faith is both defined and confirmed by the action that it produces. And the primary action 
that true faith in the Lord Jesus Christ produces is first and foremost, Peter's going to tell us, love. It's going to be love. Now, there are a lot of other actions that, that, that are produced by Christianity, genuine Christianity. But first among them all is love. And particularly, a particular kind of love. A love for one another. A love for brothers and sisters in Christ. John mentions this. James talks about it. Jesus speaks of it. And Peter's going to speak of it here. And he's going to speak of it again over in chapter 3. Love is a critical facet of Christian faith. Love is what we're to be known for. Like Philadelphia, the city, we're to be a people known by our brotherly love. And yet, one of the greatest plagues on the Christian church, historically and presently, has been and still is, the way people who claim to be Christians treat other people, particularly one another. It's not just a modern problem. It's a problem that's been around as long as the church has been around. So it's not new to our generation. It's just as current today as it was in Rome in Paul's day. Paul writes in Romans uh, to Roman believers who were arguing over minor issues, who were judging each other and doing all sorts of other things in Romans 14:19, He says, look, so then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. In other words, pursue love. You're not loving one another. He writes to the church at Corinth, who, who is no secret to anybody who's read First or Second Corinthians, is a church that had problems in its interpersonal relationships with one another. There's sexual immorality between believers. They're suing each other. They're divorcing one another. They're competing with each other. They're not forgiving each other. And Paul writes to them in First Corinthians 16, Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. And let all that you do be done how? Be done in love. Be done in love. You're not loving each other. The church in Galatia is fighting and arguing as well. And Paul writes to them in Galatians 5, verses 14 and following. He says, the entire law is summed up in a single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out. You'll be destroyed by each other. Something ironic about an apostle having to write to believers in a church to stop biting and devouring each other and to start loving one another. The church at Ephesus, in that church there's lying, there's sinning and anger, there's stealing, there's speaking evil of others. And so Paul writes in Ephesians 4, verse 25 and following, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we're members of one another. Be angry, but don't sin. And don't let the sun go down on your anger. And give no opportunity for the devil. Let the thief steal no longer. But rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up as the, fits the occasion. May give grace to those who hear. Those are all very practical ways that Paul is pleading with the Ephesian church to start loving each other. You're not loving each other. You're lying. Speak the truth. You're not loving each other when you steal from each other. Stop stealing. The sin, the heart sin of all those things that Paul is correcting in Ephesians chapter 4 is a lack of love for one another. We steal with somebody because we don't love them rightly. We lie to somebody because we lack love for them. We hold on to our anger and our grudges against one another because we don't love appropriately. We speak in harsh and condemning and nasty ways because we don't love people like we ought to. So it's a problem in Corinth, it's a problem in Galatia, it's a problem in Ephesus, it's a problem in Rome. And I suspect you and I would agree that it's a problem in the United States of America, even in the holy city here in Charleston, right? Maybe that name is as much as an oxymoron as Philadelphia. What do you think? Those of us who've lived here for a long time could probably make that case, couldn't we? The church today is no, is no stranger to a lack of love. It results in conflicts. Just a few statistics just to help you see the issue. 
According to one survey, born-again Christians in the United States file four to eight million lawsuits every year, often against other Christians, costing between 20 and 40 billion dollars annually. On the church scene, one survey tells us there are approximately 19,000 major scarring church conflicts in the U.S. every year. To break that down, that's an average of 50 a day. Major scarring church, church conflicts. This is conflicts among groups of people who claim to be in the light. 50 a day. 1,500 pastors leave their assignments every month in the U.S. because of conflict, burnout, moral failure, costing the church at least $684 million each year. That's remarkable, isn't it? And statistics go on and on and on, and I suppose that that's probably enough to establish that that Peter's challenge to the readers in his day, to the believers in his day, is just as relevant to you and to me and to believers in our culture in our day as it was to each and every person Paul and Peter wrote to. And if your experience is anything like mine, it confirms this reality. Some of the meanest, nastiest, most unkind, spiteful, rude, hateful people I've ever met in my life, ever encountered, have been people I've met inside church who will be very proud to tell you at the outset of any conversation that they're a Christian. I can tell you as a pastor, just over a couple of decades now of serving in church, I have been treated on occasions far worse by people who claim to be Christians than I've ever been treated by any unbeliever. That's the truth. Don't, I don't tell you that to feel sorry for me. I've lived a, a, a blessed and charmed life. I'm just making the statement. My experience has been the meanest, nastiest, most unkind people that I've ever had to deal with in my life have been people who are in a church and claim to be Christian. I don't think it's just a, a unique experience to me. I think probably many of you could tell the same sort of testimony of your life. And it's not just about a personal experience. You see, the problem with that is there are thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people who are sitting in their homes or laying in their beds or playing golf or on the lake this morning because they don't want anything to do with a Christian church because of how they've been treated by believers, by people who identify with the church. Or what they've seen as a casual observer looking from the outside in that goes on inside of a Christian community. They've watched churches argue and they've watched them fight. They've been cheated in business by a Christian. I have a friend who owns a company. And one of the things he told me years ago was he said, Listen, I've learned one thing in my business. You better be wary of the person that you meet. That The first thing they tell, have to tell you is that they're a Christian. You watch out for doing business with that person. His point was, if that's what they're telling you at the outset, if they have to verbalize that at the beginning, he's learned to watch his back. That's sad, isn't it? But it's the reality of his life, and it's the testimony of his business. In fact, it could be argued that the testimony of the church, in many ways, has been ruined in the world because Christians can't figure out how to deal with one another. Christians can't figure out how to treat each other. Because Christians refuse to love one another. And that's what Peter's challenging on us this morning. This text is all about Peter calling believers to love one another. To live lives that are marked by a deep and personal and sacrificial love for others. And that's going to be the challenge for you and me this morning as we walk our way through the text. Is to ask the question, where do I fit into all this? How does this apply to my life? Is my life one that's marked by an abiding, sacrificial, deep, and real love for other believers, primarily the context of this text. And if it's not, what am I going to do about it? Am I contributing to a positive testimony in the world for the church of Jesus Christ, or am I one of the ones who's undercutting it by the way I treat other people? That's the question before us this morning. And Peter gives it to us in this text uh, in really kind of three ways that will sort of outline it. We're going to look first at the command to love. It's central to our text. is a command just simply to love one another. And then he's going to move on from giving us the command to, 
talking to us about how we have the ability to do this command. And then he's going to give us some insight into the nature of love. So the command to love, where do we get the ability to do it? And then what does it look like, the nature of it? So that's kind of how we'll break this down this morning. The main issue of the passage we find uh, right there uh, in verse 22. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. It's the primary command of the text. It's the, it's the focal point of the issue. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. The issue is love. It's the word Philadelphia, of all things. Maybe you knew that or maybe you didn't. The name of the city is also a biblical word. It's the word we find here. But what is this love that... That, that Peter is talking about. What is this love that we're called to here? Well, it's important for us to take a moment, minute and think about that because how the Bible defines love and what Peter has in mind when he tells him to love one another is not the same connotation that our culture gives when we talk about the word love. We use the word love in all sorts of contexts, right? I told you a couple of weeks ago, I love ice cream. I love pizza. That's not, that's not the issue here. It's not that kind of a love. The culture around us wants us to think that love is all about feelings, right? If you look at how any movie that you watch defines love or how it portrays love or, or anything in popular culture, it really defines love by how love feels, by how love feels or how love makes me feel. Scriptures don't define love by how it makes me feel or even how it feels. The Bible defines love primarily by what love does. The Bible defines love primarily by what love does, not how love feels. And it's hard for us to wrap ourselves around that because everything in our culture screams love is about a feeling. I mean, you look at it in the relational realm. Love is about a feeling. We just fall into it. The feeling happens. Then all of a sudden, you know, you, you, you fall in love and the feeling happens and everything is great. And you get married, and you launch out into your new marriage together, and you're feeling this wonderful thing for one another, right? And then all of a, day, all of a sudden, one day you wake up, and what happens? The feeling isn't there. You've lost that love and feeling. Someone should write a song about that. You roll over the bed, and you look at that snoring dude with hair everywhere. You think, what did I get myself into? Or you get into some argument or heated dispute. You feel strongly about your position and the other person feels just as strongly about theirs. And anger begins to boil up. And all of a sudden, what you're feeling is not love. And for so many, the net result of that is going before a judge and dissolving the marriage. And the explanation is, We've fallen out of love. We've fallen out of love. It's like a hole. You fell into it and now you've fallen out of it. The only way that works is if you define love by how it feels. It felt good for a while and now it doesn't feel good anymore. And since it doesn't feel good anymore, we must not be in love anymore. So let's go find somebody else that we can fall in love with and get that love and feeling back. Scriptures don't define love like that. Just the culture around us does. Scriptures define love primarily by what love does. For God so loved the world that he he gave. He did something. He gave his only begotten son. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my command. You'll do something. You'll do something. It's not about the feeling of the moment. Biblical love is an act of obedience, or excuse me, an act of will in obedience to God. When Peter says we're to love one another, he's not telling you, he's not telling me we're committed to feel something for each other. He's telling us that we need to act a certain way towards one another in obedience to God. That's what he's saying. I'm to treat you a certain way. I'm to act towards you in a certain way. I'm to behave towards you in a certain manner out of obedience to God, regardless of how I feel. Now, don't get me wrong. Love often feels great. Often true love has with it, real genuine love has with it, a bunch of wonderful emotions. But sometimes love is painful. And sometimes loving is hard. And sometimes it's an act of sheer will. Because I'm determined to obey the Lord. 
You see, biblical love is born not out of how I feel, but out of a motivation to obey God. That's where it's born. It's born out of a motivation to obey God. One way of defining love is this. It's the purposeful commitment to sacrificial action toward another. A purposeful commitment to sacrificial action for another. Powerful emotions may accompany biblical love, but it's the commitment of the will that holds it fast and keeps it unchanging. Our emotions change, right? Do your emotions change? What all kinds of things affect your emotions? Ah, any number of things. My emotions are... I'm an emotional person, person, and I, all sorts of things affect my emotions. I mean, last night, I'm in the, in, laying in the bed with my son, we were watching the, the Olympics, and I'm watching a bunch of Olympians stand and get their gold medal, and the national, and, and, and national anthem is playing, and all of a sudden, I've got tears coming out of my eyes. I didn't win a thing. I'm just laying in the bed. But it touched me in some sort of way. I was proud for them. And in some way, just through a television set, I was in a little tiny way experiencing that with them, being one of their fellow countrymen. But all sorts of things affect my emotions, whether I got enough sleep or not. That affects my emotions. Does it affect yours? Where's our new moms? Right? God bless you. You're allowed to have some crazy emotions. You don't sleep ever. We love you. We pray for you. We'll be patient with you. All sorts of things affect our emotions. If, if, if genuine love was based on our emotions, we'd be up and down all the time based on a thousand factors. But the command here is a command to do something all the time with regularity, not on an up and down basis depending on how we feel. It's an act of the will to act sacrificially towards other people. The characteristics of this kind of love are not minor, they're major In fact, the Scriptures tie our ability to do this to our salvation. Let me read you an expanded version of 1 John 2, verses 9-11. through We just read the first part of that. Whoever says he's in the light but hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and doesn't know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Somebody who consistently does not act lovingly toward other believers should not be able to look in the mirror and have strong confidence in their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what John is is saying. It's also tied to our ability to evangelize. John says this in John 13, 35. "By, By this, all people will know that you're my disciples. How? If you've got all your doctrine straight, because you've memorized a thousand verses, because you can argue with the best of them, and when your point, nope, the world will know you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Get one. The greatest and most prominent testimony to a watching world that the church has is its love for one another. Did you get that? The greatest evangelistic tool the church has for a world that's watching is its love for one another. And it's no wonder that the Christian church in so many places is declining, if that's true. Because in so many places and in so many ways, the church is not known for its love for each other. People look at the church, and churches all over are known for all sorts of things. But rarely is there a church that's known for its love. You know, it's a prayer that it's on the heart of your elders that that's what this church would be known for. We care about a lot of things. We care about doctrinal purity. We care about the Word of God and teaching it in depth. And we, we care about getting it right. Those things really matter to us. And they're important to us. And they should be. And they're important to you. And they should be. But according to John, the primary way the world around us, this city, this zip code, will know that we belong to the Lord Jesus Christ and who He really is will be because we love one another. Because they encounter us in the grocery store. Because they walk into our environment. Or because they see us at a soccer game. And what they see and what they experience is a genuine, biblical sort of love that they don't see in the rest of the world. 
It's tied to our ability to evangelize. If we don't love one another, forget evangelizing the world, the city, the zip code, your neighborhood, or anybody. It's hard to share the gospel with your neighbor when you've had a heated argument with him the day before and you've been unloving or when you've been holding a grudge for the last three years or however long. So it's tied to our salvation. It's tied to our ability to evangelize. It's identified by the Lord as the second most important act of obedience. Mark chapter 12, verses 30 and 31. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. That's the most important, the first of the commandments. And the second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. And second... Love other people. Everything else falls in a priority structure after that somewhere. And so what Peter is commanding us is consistent with what the Scriptures teach all throughout, that we are called to love one another. Love one another. Now here in in Mark chapter 12, he's talking about loving your neighbor. That's Jesus' context. And there is this this concept and this, this reality, this truism in Scripture that we are to love our neighbor. And who is our neighbor? It's everyone around us. But Peter is saying primarily, and John was arguing primarily, that there's a subset of loving our neighbor, and that subset is loving one another within the household of God, in the church, loving each other. Look around you right now. No, seriously, look around you right now. You see all those people? You see them? Look at them. Smile at them. Smile. Look at somebody. Smile. Move your head. It's good calisthenic exercise while you're sitting for an hour. It's those people that you're called to love. You're here. They're the one another's. It's critical. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. You say, how in the world do we do that? Because I had this rotten flesh that, that, that wars against my, my desire to love others. And, and, and I, I do dumb things and I say dumb things and it's hard for me to love. How in the world do I do this? Well, Peter gives us some insight. He tells us that our ability to obey this command, the command to love one another, the ability to do that is rooted in God's saving love for us. He says it this way, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. Get that? Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. And then in verse 23, he says, since you've been born again. And he goes on to explain, referencing back, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. That having purified your souls by your obedience for the truth and having been born again brackets this command to love. And what's the point? He's saying that, that your ability to do what I'm commanding you to do is predicated upon you being a Christian to begin with. Since you're a Christian, that's what he's saying. Since you've had your soul purified by obedience, that phrase, by your obedience to the truth, is linked to that phrase, having been born again. And the two concepts are, are really synonymous, arguing for the same thing. And what Peter is saying is, look, Since you're Christians, since you've been born again, since God has redeemed you, love one another. Or put another way, since you've experienced the extravagant, redeeming love of the the Heavenly Father and the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Since you've experienced that and it's become a present reality in your life, you love one another. And the key issue here is this. Since you've been saved, you love. The argument here that Peter is making is that unbelievers, people who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, are completely incapable of obeying the command. People who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, Peter is arguing, lack the capacity and the ability to genuinely and consistently love as the Bible defines love. That doesn't mean unbelievers can't commit acts of love. It doesn't mean they can't experience love in various ways. But they cannot obey this command and what the biblical call to love consistently and routinely, and it will not uh, mark their lives primarily because they don't know the love of God. Peter is arguing that you are commanded to love one another because you've experienced the redeeming love of God. And the only way you can ever do that is having first experienced God's love for you. You see, something remarkable happens when we come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. 
something remarkable happens when we repent of our sin and we entrust our lives to Jesus Christ to save us. Not only does He forgive our sin and wipe the slate clean, not only does He wipe away the past, but the Bible tells us something else happens. That He pours within us a new capacity to behave in ways we never could before. He pours within us specifically the ability to love with a supernatural love that we never had before. You see, Peter is writing to these believers and he's saying to them, Listen, when you were saved, God didn't just forgive you. He didn't just cleanse you from an impure past. He's given you a new capability to obey Him and a new capability to love others in the present and in the future as well. Paul echoes this in Romans chapter 5, verse 5, when he says this, talking about having been justified by faith and peace with God. He says this, And hope doesn't put us to shame because what? God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. I love the way that's described, don't you? When I came to know Christ, that God's love, His love, it's like in a big bucket, this divine supernatural love, it just got dumped into my heart. It wasn't there before, but upon coming to know the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord just dumped His love into my heart through the Holy Spirit, giving me a new capacity to love other people that I did not previously have. Lost people don't have the capacity. Lost people can do loving things. We see it all the time. But primarily, apart from an intimate relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ, people will in general live selfishly. We'll live for ourselves. We'll love. They'll love. They'll love their families, right? They'll love people who love them back. They'll do sacrificial things for their kids. But not so much strangers not so much others. You see, this ability that Peter is talking about here, this love that's poured into our hearts upon saving faith, gives us the ability now to engage in what Peter is calling us to do. And that is to love one another. Not just people who are part of my family. Not just people who behave well all the time. Not just people who think and act and behave like me all the time. But people who simply share a faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers, sisters, one another. Love them. God has poured that ability into our hearts. And now we have His love in us, and we can reflect that love towards other people. Ezekiel in the Old Testament speaks of this. He spoke of a time when this would happen. He talks about saving faith this way. He says this, and this is God speaking in verse uh, 25 of chapter 36. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I'll cleanse you, and I'll give you a new heart. Right? A new heart and a new spirit I'll put within you and I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I'll give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. I mean, that's Ezekiel describing in advance what was going to happen when people in the future came to know the Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior, the Redeemer in a personal way. God would rip out their stone hearts that we're incapable of truly consistently loving as as the Scriptures call us to. And we replace them with a heart of flesh and a spirit that would cause us to be able to do what God has called us to do. To love people. To love one another. This love that He's calling us to is demonstrated by God Himself. He He is the one who models it for us. What does His love look like? If we want to know what this love that we're being called to looks like, look at how God loves us. It's the same kind of love that was poured into us. It's the same kind of love that should be exuding out of us. What does that love look like? Well, it looks like the passage we saw in 1 John 4, 9 through 11 again. It's not so much that we loved God, but He loved us first. God loved us first. Not that we've loved Him, but that He loved us. And sent His Son to be a propitiation for our sins. God loved us first before we ever loved Him. The first characteristic of biblical love, the way God models it, is it's a love that loves first. It's not a reactionary sort of a love. It's not a love that just responds to good things that other people do to us, right? 
It's easy to love people who do kind things toward us. It's easy to love in response. When somebody has been good toward us, it's easy to then respond with love, isn't it? But the kind of love that Peter's calling us to is the kind of love God models. And that kind of love is a love that's an initiatory love. It's a love that acts first. God loved us before we ever loved him. What implication does that have for our understanding of what Peter's calling us to? And he says, love one another. Love one another purely, earnestly, from the heart. He's talking about a kind of love that initiates action. A love that doesn't wait for somebody else to love us first. A love that's willing to to reach out to somebody that I don't know. Maybe to somebody who's a stranger. Maybe even to someone who's difficult and hard for me to deal with. And to love them in actions first. God loved us first before we ever loved Him. Maybe we should learn to love other people first before and regardless of whether or not they love us back. God's love is a love that's first. The second characteristic of his love is this. He loved us when we were completely unlovable. That's true, isn't it? Loved us when we were... While we were yet sinners, what? Christ died for us. While I was a rebellious sinner, rebelling against God, what was God doing? Nothing but loving me by sending his own son to die for me, to rescue me out of my rebellion. He loved me when I was completely unlovable and acting in rebellion against him. What does godly love look like? What does biblical love look like? It initiates and it loves even when others are unlovable. Third characteristic of his love, his love is unrequited Unrequited. It's not a word we use all the time. It simply means, when I say that, that God loved us regardless of how we might respond. It doesn't, it doesn't demand or require a response to be put into play. It doesn't need anything in return. It doesn't say, I love you because you love me. His love toward us is independent of any return. That's the kind of love that's been poured into us. What does that look like? To love other people that way. To love other people without any expectation or demand that it's going to come back to us in some positive way. Independent of how they might respond. That's how God loves. His love is also unconditional and self-giving. It's unconditional. It's not conditioned upon anything. It doesn't care how much it's offended, abused, sinned against. It forgives And it's willing to put it behind. It's not based on conditions. It's not, I'll love you if you do this, that, or the other. I'll love you and I'll act lovingly towards you if you behave a certain way, if you respond a certain way, if you do the things I like, if you act like me, if you think like me, if you do what pleases me. None of those conditions are on it. It's unconditional. It's a love that says, I'm loving. I'm loving you because I love God and I want to obey Him. And it doesn't matter what you do in response, and it really isn't conditioned upon anything. I'm just doing this toward you because I love him and want to obey him. And I do it joyfully, without condition. Self-giving. Sacrifices for the good of others. God so loved, he gave his only begotten son. That costs something. It costs something. God's love was a costly love kind of love we're to have toward one another is a costly love. It's a kind of love that, that gladly gives and even does so without, for themselves, for the sake of somebody else with joy. It's a love that says, you know what? If loving me costs you something, I'll gladly pay the price. Look at that list for me for a moment. That's how God has loved you. That's what God's, look like, God's love looks like, at least in part, as it's expressed toward you. Now think in terms of Peter's command. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Is that what love looks like in your life? Is that the way you love one another? Other Christians? Does your love look like a a love that initiates toward them? Is it a love that loves them even when they're unlovable? Is it a love that, that doesn't require any response and isn't doesn't have a thousand strings attached to it, that's willing to sacrifice for their good, even if it costs you. That's the kind of love with which God has loved you. 
And it's only because God has poured that into your heart that you have the ability to love that way towards others. This kind of love, that kind of love, does not come naturally to you or to me. It does not come naturally. It only comes by a miraculous work of God in redeeming your sinful soul and pouring into you the love of Christ. When you understand that God has loved you like that, it changes how you see loving other people. Take a long, hard look at that list. Is that how you love one another, each other? Well, that's the ability. What is the last thing? The nature of, of love that he gives us here. The nature of love. Love one another deeply from a pure heart. This is simple and self-explanatory. Deeply. It's not shallow. It's not superficial. Deeply can also be translated fervently. Love, love deeply. Love fervently. The word here is actually a physiological term that means to stretch to the furthest limits of a muscle's capacity. It, and put it another way, it just means to go all out. To go all out. To stretch to the limit to love one another. Love one another deeply. He's not saying, he's saying, don't love shallow. Don't love superficially. Love deeply. Stretch to the limit to love each other. He's talking about navigating with one another in ways that are deeper than just the surface. The love he's talking about here is not just the, the kind of love that, that passes by in a corridor and exchanges cordialities on the surface. Hey, how you doing? How's life? Good. How are you? Hey, praying for you. See you later. Have a good day. That's not what he's talking about. That's not deep. That's not fervent. That's not sacrificial. That's shallow. He's calling us to a love that's well beyond that. It's a love that's from the heart or from a pure heart. It's sincere. It's not hypocritical. It's not mere words, but it's action. And what's, what's insinuated here is an active local church membership. It is impossible to obey this command apart from being connected to the body of Christ. You get that? You cannot love one another deeply and from the heart if you're not connected to people whom you know and whom you care about. There's no room for, for sort of the Lone Ranger Christian here. You can't love people deeply that you don't know. You can't love from the heart people who you're not interested in and who you have no concern for. The only way to obey this command is to be connected in a local body and to know people. More than the surface. I mean to know them. To know who they are. To know what they feel. To know what they think. To know where they hurt. To know what their needs are. To know what puts a smile on their face and what brings a tear to their eyes. So many people in our culture just live on the periphery of the church. And there are so many movements in our culture that promote that. Church movements that promote that. Come here. All you have to do is disappear into the crowd. That's not biblical love. That's not what Peter's calling these believers to. He's saying you need to lock into relationships with people and love them deeply and from the heart. One another. Know one another. Love one another. Care about one another. Act sacrificially toward one another. And that shows up in how we think and how we act and how we feel. Listen. You can't love people you don't know. And if you're here this morning and you're not connected to the body of Christ in ways that allow you to know other people, in ways that, 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 that draw you into caring for them in, in deep and real and personal ways, then you absolutely cannot obey the Scripture that you're hearing this morning. And you need to adjust your life and get connected with the body of Christ, with people that you can love from the heart and deeply. The body of Christ was never meant, in a, in a global sense, but primarily in a local sense, it was never meant to be just a, po- a group of people who show up a couple of times a week, watch a show, and go back to their normal lives. Never was it meant to be that way. Never did Peter envision that. Never did Paul envision that. Never did Jesus envision that. It's always been a group of people who come together in genuine, deep, and personal, loving relationships and love one another 
in such a way that a watching, sinful world can look on from the outside and say, I don't know what those people have, but it's something I don't see anywhere else, and I want it badly for myself. I want to challenge you to help us develop that culture here. We want to be a biblical church that models the love of Christ. The only way that happens is if you and I are biblical believers who model the love of Christ to one another. Who learn what it means to to love deeply from the heart. Well, there's much more to be said about this, but our time is up. One more time, look around at the people you see. Go ahead, do it. I want to ask you a question this morning. What would it look like for you? What would it look like for you personally, for you as an individual? What would it look like in your life to love those people earnestly and from the heart? What adjustments have to be made in your life in order for you to do that? What changes have to be made in order to allow you to engage in that kind of relationship with other believers that would allow you to joyfully love them in action the way God has loved you? I don't know the answer about that. You know the answer. The Spirit of God will show you. And for some of us this morning, we just need to look at our own lives and we need to say, you know what? Changes need to happen. There's repentance that needs to take place. I need to repent for an apathy that I have towards other people. For thinking that it's all about me and Jesus and nobody else matters. I need to repent for, in some cases, maybe our ungodly behavior towards one another. You're here this morning and you're holding a grudge against somebody. You need to get that right this morning. Because grudges don't, don't line up with love. You're holding anger in your heart towards another believer. You need to let go of that right this second. Because it doesn't line up with loving them deeply and from the heart. You've been treating somebody in unkind ways. You repent of that sin this morning. You've been given to gossip and slandering of other people with your mouth. You need to shut your mouth and repent of your sin. And only speak things that build one another up. Because that's what love does. You see? There's all sorts of ways that it applies to us personally. I pray this morning, as you close your eyes and bow your head, that you would think through this seriously. What does it look like for me to love one another deeply and from the heart? Do the words that come out of my mouth when I speak of other believers reflect a, reflect a love that is deep and from the heart? Do the thoughts that I harbor and secretly enjoy towards others... Do, Does it reflect a heart that loves deeply and from the heart? Does the attitude I display when I don't get my way or when things don't go my way or when I'm not recognized the way I'd like to be recognized or when somebody doesn't treat me the way I'd like to be treated, does it reflect a love that's sacrificial and unrequited and unconditional? Heavenly Father, we come before you with repentant hearts because it doesn't take a very deep examination of our hearts to uncover ways in which we don't really love one another. Not like you've loved us. Oh, it's easy for us, Lord, to be superficial. It's easy for us to smile and shake a hand and exchange surface niceties. But it's hard to love. It's hard to initiate towards others that we don't really know. It's hard to, to, to sacrificially act towards others in a certain way when we're not sure how they're going to respond. And it's particularly hard when we don't find them lovable. And yet that's exactly how you've loved us. We pray this morning you'd forgive us our sin of slander and gossip and anger lying dishonesty speaking unkindly towards others seeing needs and ignoring them even though we have the ability to meet them forgive us for these things forgive us Lord for an apathy that we have towards other people 
our selfishness in our own lives, thinking that we're the only ones that matter or our families are the only ones that matter. Forgive us, Lord, for wrecking your testimony in the world by the way we treat others. And we pray that in these quiet moments you'd change our hearts. That you, as you forgive us, you would give us a new motivation and a new desire and a new ability to love one another deeply from our hearts. To model the love with which you've loved us. And we pray that anybody in this community that doesn't know you, that encounters us in Walmart, on the soccer field, in our neighborhood, or in this building, that what they would see is a love that they don't see anywhere else. Make that the reality of our hearts and our lives. We pray for Christ's sake. In His glory, amen.